get this to clip onto my pocket. One, this crazy little basketball. You wonder, why am I holding this little basketball? Well, this, this basketball belongs to one of the most precious little dudes in the church. Not Tony. <laughs> but Arthur. And that little ball just mysteriously flew up and hit our projector this last week. Bumped it out of focus. And so we went on a little covert mission yesterday to both <laughs> dial in the projector <laughs> and retrieve the basketball which is all a preamble to saying, uh, regardless of what day of the week it is, we need to be careful with our electronics. We've kind of put out a little, little update to all of the different ministries about that. And if you have any questions, you can see me or one of the other elders or, or leaders here. But we need to be careful with our stuff. Uh, God's blessed us with this stuff. We need to be Mindful of that, I want to mention one thing uh, before we dive in, and I'll start with just saying welcome, like David says every week, and I say every week, if you're new here, man, we welcome you here. We're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're in the house of the Lord. Uh, we, we, we have this running uh, mindset that um, we don't believe that people just like show up at church on accident. Now, maybe some, and I've heard lots and lots of testimonies over the years of people saying, you know, I was, I was driving by that place the other day, Wednesday, coming home from Spokane, and I just really felt an urge that maybe I should show up on Sunday. Uh, that is not accidental. By our estimation, that's not accidental. We believe that that's what God's doing, and it's not about just being here. We're not the only church on the face of the earth and the only church in Stevens County. Lots of churches in the area. And we believe that people should be in fellowship. We believe that people should be uh, hearing from the Lord. They should be in the Word together. And we just encourage people to uh, all over the, the area to embrace that. One thing, I never have my cell phone up here, so I'm a little bit awkward. Forgive me for that. But I wanted to read this to you from our missionaries, Ramon and Rebecca Tatarovich. And the other missionaries are uh, Sharon and Ruslan Borodin. They both, Ramon and Ruslan, are Ukrainian. Both couples uh, we support as missionaries, and they've been in the Ukraine for years. Uh, that's, their, that's their ministry base. That's their, their field. Those are the people that God's called them to reach out and to touch. And if you know anything about what's going on in the world right now, uh, the Ukraine is a hot spot. So we got this text just this morning. It says, thank you. Things are getting difficult. Ramon talked to, to our pastors and leadership at the church in Ukraine. Ram, a little FYI, Ravon and Rebecca are here in Spokane. Rebecca's been diagnosed with cancer. Uh, the diagnosis is not favorable, I'll put it that way. Um, but nothing's outside of God's ability for sure, so we're praying for her healing. So they're here, but they're hearing from people over there. They say this, they say that <clears throat> they will have a meeting today, this is in the Ukraine, they will have a meeting today to set up evacuation and receiving refugees from the east. We're praying it does not come to this. Right now our Ternopil YWAM base is full of people from the Kiev base. Difficult times for sure, and we appreciate your prayers. So many little ones and friends who are pregnant. With all these big wranglings in the world and the, and the Bible talks about wars and rumors of wars, when all these big power heads start to thinking about what ground can we take back and, and, and what's strategic for us, the last thing on their mind is the little ones and the ladies that are expecting. And it's really abominable in my mind anyway 
uh, that these things are taking place. But it's, it's not just there. Uh, another request, as, as I'm literally receiving this, another request, somebody come up, Esther come up and talk to me and said, hey, can we pray for, for what's going on in Canada? The unrest, the lack of peace, the, all that goes with, uh, with, with what's going on in our world uh, over all these hot-button topics, and it's not just there, it's not just Ukraine, it's right here. Uh, so let's just spend a minute, and then we'll dive into the Word, and uh, maybe I can thread all these things together in a nice little uh, bow as we wrap up 1 Corinthians 16. So let's pray. Father, we come before You. We come, Lord, humbly, uh, but we come before your throne this morning on behalf of uh, people really around the globe that are suffering at the hands uh, of, of uh, these different movements, uh, Lord, that are uh, where there's so much division and lack of unity, where there's strife, where there's potential warfare, where there's trials and tribulations, Lord, where there's uh, people's lives are, are, are being uh, deeply affected and potentially put in danger. Lord, we pray for, for uh, the Ukraine. We pray for Canada. We pray for our own community and surrounding communities. And uh, Lord, we pray really for the state of our nation and, and the, the nations around the globe. And Lord, we pray that you would just uh, intervene in a mighty way and we, we see bits and pieces of that. Father, it's not like not like nothing's happening. Uh, we, see, we see people turning to you, and we, we simply just call out for more of that. More people turning to you for truth. More people looking for encouragement. More people looking for uh, uh, a little bit of hope in this world. And Father, as your children, uh, would you embolden us the church, would you embolden us to speak up on behalf of hope? Would you embolden us to speak up on on behalf of peace? Would you embolden us, Lord, to stand for truth and to do it in a way that's loving, that's gracious, that has honest conversations? Lord, people are looking for something that's real. And I just pray, Lord, for everyone here in this room, including myself, that we would just receive really that extra measure of boldness from you. And it's easy here, Father. It's easy while it's, while it's here and we're all together. But Lord, we need it tomorrow morning. We need it Tuesday morning. We need it throughout the week. So I pray for those divine appointments. Pray, Lord, that uh, you would just use your people in a mighty way this week and in the weeks to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As I mentioned, we've been studying through 1 Corinthians, and we have made it. It seems like a complete uh, long-distance marathon, but we've made it all the way through this wonderful epistle of 1 Corinthians. And early in in the series, I put up this slide that Haley will have up for you, and it's a list of all the topics that God is addressing for the, for the Christians there in Corinth. On the left is a various, uh, several different issues that were reported to Paul. It was reported that there was division in the church, right? Chapter 1, I mean, he just like, hey, how you doing? Boom, let's talk about division, right? 
Like he comes out of the gate swinging, the Apostle Paul does in his letter here. He talks about immorality. He talks about lawsuits amongst believers. He talks about idolatry, uh, people with divided interests, Christians that, that struggle with, uh, <clears throat> with uh, having divided interest uh, when it comes to who they're worshiping and, and, and what's going on there. He talks about uh, issues in the home, issues in the marriage. He spends a lot of time in, in issues in our marital issues and, and uh, what was going on there. He talks about the Lord's Supper. On the other side was these requests that they had. There was this group of men, and it'll show up in, the, in, the, uh, in chapter 16, but they had, the, the Corinthian believers had questions for him. They wanted to know about certain things. And so uh, the request on the other side is, what about marriage? What about divorce? What about you know, this meat sacrifice to idols? Is it good? Is it bad? Uh, what do we do there? What about the spiritual gifts that God has given each one of his believers? They, ha- they had some genuine questions. So the book is kind of, it's kind of threaded together, both, both issues that Paul needed to correct and issues that they had questions about that he needed to bring truth and to bear on that. Chapter 16 really is Paul's parting encouragements and comments. And even in the close of this letter, we can find several intriguing things uh, that will push us to live in an increasingly godly way. Let's take a look. To get your Bibles out. Uh, I heard in a sermon that you get a full point if you have an actual Bible and a half point if you're on looking at a digital Bible. I don't know what that means, but the guy that I was listening to, his church laughed, so there you go. <laughs> there we go. Now it's starting to work. I don't really much care which way you look at the word. Uh, I do think it's... The, the reason why I encourage, I suppose I would lean this way, that you have an actual Bible, is because uh, the margins are a great place to take notes. And if you're the type of person that's like, yeah accept my forgiveness, <laughs> or extend forgiveness, accept my apology. But I think that, uh, I think it's a great place to write things down. Chapter 16, let's just go ahead and read the whole thing, and we'll go back and look at just a couple of, uh, uh, zoom in on a few points there in chapter 16. Paul says this in chapter 16, verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I've given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gifts to Jerusalem. But it is fitting that I go also, that they go with me. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia. A little travel. Here's his itinerary uh, as he's writing this down, such as it is. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I'm passing through Macedonia. We get that, Paul. You mentioned it twice. And it may be there I will remain, even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now, on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door is open to me, and there are many adversaries. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be <coughs> with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord, as also, 
as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now concerning our brother, Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, let all that you be, do be done with love. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first, that, that is the first fruits of Achaia, that they are, have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I'm glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaeus, uh, for what was lacking on your part they supplied, for they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such, acknowledge such men. The church of Asia greets you, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house, and the brothers greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, we won't spend a lot of time on that verse per se, uh, but I think that we generally know the concept. If not, we'll do a marriage class. <laughs> the, salute, uh, the salutation, this salutation is with my own hand, Paul's. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And with that, we have read the whole chapter. Let me get to my notes. There's a couple of particular areas that I really want to hone in on. One is right at the beginning of the chapter. Because I think it's a, I think it's a, 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 great, uh, a great reminder for us, a great way to, uh, uh, to be reminded of what God does in the life of a group of people. And my point is simply this, is be generous as the church. And I believe that we are generous. It's not, this is not a, a, a corrective word. It's an encouraging word that we continue to press out and press out and walk in faith and believe that God's going to do more and trust God when we're unsure, but we're still going to walk in faith and we're going to be a generous church. One of the guys that was a great mentor to me, uh, a, a guy that's passed on with the Lord now, he always told me, he says, Mark, a church that gives outside of, its, of itself will be a church that has God's wind at its back. And that's what I want. That's what we want as your leadership. That's what you have to want for your church. Is you want to, you, we want God's wind at our back, especially when it comes with being generous. And being generous is always a walk of faith. It's always a walk of faith. But we want to be a generous church. If you look at the pictures across the, the back of the church, those are the missionaries that we support and we're adding to them. We're adding to them. We're pushing what, uh, close to 40%, 30, are we that high? Where are we at? 28%? I thought we were higher than that. We got to do better. <laughs> if you take what we budget to go to missions, plus what the extra donations are, can you give me that number off the top of your head? The budget plus the extra donations.
about 20000 extra beyond the budget that you guys, that you guys want to give to missions. Thank you, David, for correcting me. I'm sorry I put you on the spot. I don't like to do that necessarily all the time. It's not my style. <laughs> we need to be a generous church. Churches, I will say this, churches need to be generous in several New Testament passages. I, I, I should go back. I'm remiss here that I didn't read the verses I'm looking at, and that's one through four. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I've given orders to the churches in Galatia, so you must do also. So Paul's, Paul's not putting all of this just on the Corinthian church. He's saying to all the churches that he started, hey, you guys, you, there's, a, there's a desperate need. There's a desperate need. That you guys, that the churches, that we have to rise up as Christians, as God followers, as Christ followers, we need to rise up and address them. Your brothers and sisters in the Lord are hurting, and they need our help. So he says, he spreads this out. It's not, he's not just you know, putting the finger on the chest of the Corinthians. He said, so must you do also, though, talking to the Corinthians, that when they come together, interesting, first day of the week, they've already started to meet on Sunday, that you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collection when I come. He wanted this done in advance of his arrival. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send you to bear this gift to Jerusalem. So Paul does something very intriguing here. He says, this is, he's saying kind of, this is not about me. Like, I'm not wanting you to stack up all this money so that when I show up, somehow I can march out of here in pride and take it where it needs to go. He says, you guys store it up, and you guys decide who's going to take this money. You guys decide who's going to bear this gift. And they'll bear that gift in Jerusalem. In several New Testament passages, it speaks of this effort among many different churches to help the poor Christians in Jerusalem. You can look at verses, and, and I only have references here for the sake of time, but you can look at references in Acts 11, uh, in chapter 24, Romans 15, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. Uh, they all talk about these poor believers in Jerusalem. And why, why and, and Paul also mentions, <coughs> uh, Paul also mentions in a couple of different passages that his heart is with the Jerusalem church. He says that in Galatians chapter 2. And he mentions also that he, how he himself was blessed by the various gifts in Philippians chapter 4. The question arises, though, is why was the church in Jerusalem so needy? Why was the church in Jerusalem so needy? Isn't that where it all started? You would think if that's where it started, they would have a head start, and they wouldn't be so needy. Well, really, Acts tells us in two different spots, in chapter 6 and in chapter 11, that there was a large number of widows that needed help. There was a large number of widows that needed help. That's in Acts chapter 6. And they were also, chapter 11 tells us that Jerusalem was in the midst of a famine. We've never experienced famine. Let's just be honest, right? We've never experienced famine. Unless you've come from a different country in a different place on the planet, where when you go to Walmart, they don't even have Walmart there, when you go to the grocery store, and you walk in, and the, and the people are all there, but there's no food, uh, you've not experienced the type of, 
you know, that's just a glimmer of what these folks in Jerusalem in the first century experienced. So they had widows, they had needs. That's how the whole uh, uh, arrangement in the church of having deacons and leadership, that's the need that really was pressing to bring in more people to serve and more people to be in ministry. And then there's also, there was famine, chapter 11. There's really eight principles in, in the New Testament, or there could be a few more, but I wrote down eight. There's eight principles from the Bible for supporting the poor in the church. Uh, I want you to know this right as before I even get going. Uh, <clears throat> I hate talking about money in the church. Unless I'm talking about how awesome it is that, that God is blessing people through us. Uh, this is not a we need more money uh, sermon by any means. But it's good to know, it's good to know that God has some guidelines for us when it comes to being benevolent. And we should be benevolent. And I believe that we are benevolent. And we operate, generally speaking, by these eight guidelines as your leadership. So here goes. Uh, take it for what it is. Number one, benevolent distribution is a potential source of conflict and division. And, it hel- <clears throat> and it's the job of the deacons to prevent such problems by their wise, spirit-led actions. That's Acts chapter 6, addressing the, in Acts, they're addressing the widows that were uh, needed, needed food. They were abandoned, essentially. Number two, the church has an obligation to help the, tr- the truly needy. You see that in James chapter 1. The church has an obligation. We, before the Lord, we have an obligation to help those who truly need some help. Three, the church must discern who is truly needy. And you can see a verse there in 1 Timothy 5.3 that talks about that. There's a sense of discernment, and there's some qualifiers, if you will, and we're going to dive right into those. And here's the first one. If a person can work to support himself, he's not truly needy and must provide for his own needs. Second Thessalonians uh, 1 Timothy, 1 Thessalonians 4, all talk about that. It all talks about that. And I've said many times from here, I've told many, told many people in, in personal conversations essentially this, go get a job. The problem is, is that you're struggling because you need to get off the couch and you need to go get a job. You're able-bodied. There's nothing wrong, uh, even if there is a few things that are wrong. Sometimes it's just simply a matter of stop being lazy, go get a job, Whatever it is, don't wait for the $50 an hour job and and go backwards financially if there's a $15 an hour job that will get you through in the meantime. Stop being lazy. Go work. Some people just need to hear it that straight. Some people do. And I've said that many times. I'll continue to say that. Some people need to get with it. The next point is similar in a sense that if one can be if one can be supported by their family, he's not truly needy and as such should not be supported by the church. You see that in 1 Timothy 5. In other words, sometimes it's not their issue. Sometimes it's the family issue. And, and we live in a system that has things really askew from how things were in biblical times. We live in a system where, where uh, you stack it up and then your retirement will take care of you. And what we're finding today, and from today moving forward, that the inflation rates that we're under, if there's not some substantial change, 
uh, are going to be so crushing that it's going to make it harder and harder and harder for everybody, but it's going to make it really hard for those that are retired. In the biblical days, in the models that, that you see in the Bible, one generation took care of the needs of the previous. They made sure that everything was okay. I'm not preaching against retirement plans, by the way. I think it's great. Run that baby for all you can get out of it. But the reality is, is if you're my age, if you're my age, you need to make sure that you're tending to the needs of the people that are older than you. If there's any slack, if there's something there, if they're not able, whatever it is, family members, that's biblically your job. That's your job. Not somebody else's and not the church's. That's what the Bible says. Take it or leave it. I'm pretty passionate about those things because I see from time to time people that are neglecting their family and calling on to the church to do what they should be doing for themselves and their own. Uh, and it's frustrating. I want to say, read the Bible. All right, I'll get off my high horse. <laughs> it's right thing for the church to examine the moral conduct before giving support. That gets dicey from this standpoint. It takes a little time to examine whether people are struggling and, 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 and moving out, moving away from poor moral conduct. Are they, in other words, <clears throat> you, you can't, if you're in like our position in, in this arena, you can't be, come across as a jerk and say, oh no, you got a problem. We can't give anything to you. No, you have to spend some time with people and say, like, are they, are they trying? Do they have a desire to, to shift? Do they have a desire? Are they growing in their faith? What's their, the moral conduct is, a, is kind of a tricky thing. And it's, this one is not so much of a hard and fast line. Really, it boils down to is what's the, what's the life pattern there? And then if it's poor, should we confront it? it should be confronted, and if it's confronted, then let's see how it goes. But there is a sense in which we should examine moral, moral conduct. The last one, the last one before we move on and this idea of being generous as a church, the last one is the support of the church should be for the most basic necessities of living. <clears throat> I'm not, we are not going to pay somebody's dish network bill. We won't. That's not a necessity. You don't need it, and you probably don't need it. <laughs> you know, you, you guys follow what I'm saying. It's for basic necessities. Hey, let's keep the water on. Let's keep the water flowing. Let's keep the power going. You know, let's make sure that the garbage get, is getting picked up. Let's make sure, let's start back at more basic necessities. Let's make sure that there's, if you're truly needy, and you're truly struggling, uh, and, and there's an opportunity for us to be generous. We want to make sure that we're starting at the bottom up. Hey, do you have food in the fridge? Do you have diapers for your baby? You know, is there, is there some milk? Is there some meat? Is there some, some food there? And then we work up kind of from there. It's for basic necessities, uh, not for making the yacht payment. Like anybody has a yacht in Stevens County. All right. Number two, in an area where I'm probably, probably more passionate about is this second area that I want to talk about and, and where we will kind of end is at the end of these two verses. The second point for today is, is that 
that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 is not only do we need to be generous as a church, but we need to be a safeguard for the church. This is not just a, a letter to and a word towards people that are in church leadership. This is a word for everybody. This affects everybody, and it's for everybody. And the verses that I'm primarily thinking about is verses 13 and 14. Paul gives these emphatic statements. He says, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, let all that you do be done with love. Let's go through them. In a sense, each of these mean kind of the same thing. It can be kind of taken that way, way, simply saying that it's kind of simply saying the same thing in different ways. And Christians are to be kind of like strong soldiers on guard, watching for the Lord's return. That's all true. I like what the early 1800s theologian Adam Clark said. He said, the terms of this verse are all military. And he has it in the King James Version. He says, watch ye. Watch and be continually on your guard, lest you be surprised by your enemies. Stand fast in the faith, meaning keep your ranks. Do not be disorderly. Be determined to keep your ranks unbroken. Keep close together. Quit yourselves like men. That's the, uh, the uh, be brave portion. That's an old English way of saying it. But he says that is, when you're attacked, do not flinch. Maintain your ground, resist, press forward, strike home, keep compact and conquer. And then he says to be strong. If one company or division be opposed by too great a force of the enemy, strengthen that division and maintain your position. Summon up all your courage, sustain each other, fear not, for fear will invenerate or it'll drain you. Adam Clark. Fear will take all that you need right out the bottom. That's what fear does. Fear, fear erodes without us even knowing it. It will erode the courage that's needed to do what has to be done. So you've got to be careful. Fear not. Let's look at five commands to safeguard the church. Well, Jesus himself said, <coughs> commanded us to be watchful to be watchful. Look at verses 24 of chapter 24 of Matthew verse 42 or Matthew 26:41, Mark 13:37. I know I'm giving you a lot of uh, just uh, backdrop music to it, but essentially those verses are going to lead you to the conclusion that our Lord and Savior says, "Hey, open your eyes, watch what's going around you. Be be watchful, be be on guard. Have your head up, have your eyes open." B, Paul warned the Christians to stand fast. He said, stand fast in, in their liberty in Jesus, Galatians 5.1. Stand fast in Christian unity, Philippians chapter 1. Stand fast in the Lord himself, Philippians chapter 4. And stand fast in the teaching of the apostles, 2 Thessalonians 2.15. We should be standing fast. That means we're keeping our ranks, Clark says. That means we're staying tight together. That means that nothing should separate us when there's pushback against us, that nothing should separate us. And we live in a culture that's all about separation. What's good for you is good for, for you, and what's good for me is good for me. That's the mentality, that's the, the, the overarching mentality of our culture. 
You do what you want to do. I'll do what I want to do. We'll all be good. That's separation. That's not unity. That's not standing fast. As a church, we have to resist against that type of mentality. We need to come together. We need to, to stand fast together. See, this is the only place in the New Testament where this word is used, but the translation for being brave is, the Greek word is aterizomai, and this is what it means, and this is where I'll spend a little bit of time. It literally means to act like a man. So Paul's kind of calling out the dudes, right? Paul's saying, hey, in, in standing fast and watching and having your head up and watching what's going around and being alert for the Lord, you're going to need to do this. You're going to need to act like a man. Not, not effeminate, fellas. Not cowering in the corner. You know, not nudging your wife out of bed to go see, you know, what's rumbling in the alley behind the house. No. No, that's our job. Right? And I want to say, on that example, I'm potentially as guilty as anybody. I'm like, ah, we're fine. You know, we're fine. No, we need to act like men. Last week I mentioned that, uh, last week's sermon, that <clears throat> most of what we learn, most of what we take in is caught and not taught. And it's not a disregard for teaching. Of course, we need to have good teaching. But we learn uh, by example, meaning there's countless intangibles that as we grow, we pick up on those intangibles. We pick up on mom's body language as kids. We pick up on dad's body language. So when something's going bump in the night and dad jumps out of his chair, you as a little kid, you're kind of like, oh, check out dad. He's got that chest out. Grabbing a security piece. And he's heading outside. And you might not verbalize it, but as a six-year-old watching dad in that action, you're, you're processing an example that dad's the protector, that dad's acting like a man, that he's brave, and that he's strong. And we need more of that in increasing measures. There's a power of the demonstrated example that cannot be overlooked. Never before has there been such a pressing need for men to be men. Never before has manhood and womanhood been under so much social pressure to change. We live in a time in history where homogenizing the genders is the norm. When I say homogenizing, it's a fancy term. That's what happens to your milk when it leaves the local dairy, goes to the dairy gold plant in Spokane on Francis, and they put it in a blender and they stir it so hard and fast that you can never again separate the milk and the cream. That's homogenizing. That's the picture I want you to have for what's going on in our culture for the genders. And it's terrible. It's terrible. God created our genders with distinct purpose. The solution really is to get back to the Bible, back to the intention of God's created order. Men and women, husbands, wives, working together, Instead of apart, for far too long we have put, 
we have put undue pressure on the ladies to fulfill both roles. It's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking to watch a lady have to do both components. And men need to step up and act like men. Here's a few stats for you. I pulled these stats from the National Center for Fathering based out of Kansas. Uh, The stats are a little old. They're about a decade old. So as of roughly a decade ago, 2012, an estimated 24.7 million children, or 33%, live absent their biological father. Of students in grades 1 through 12, 39%, or 17.7 million, live in homes absent their biological father. This is in America. 57.6% of black children, 31.2% of Hispanic children, and 20.7% of white children are living absent their biological father. That's of 2012. I really, in uh, a decade, have not seen anything that would reverse these trends, so I'm sure the numbers are probably higher at this point. The last one is, is according to 72.2% of the U.S. population, fatherlessness is the most significant family or social problem facing America. I haven't seen too much press in the last two decades about the real issues in America. This is the real issue. Men not being men. Men not acting like men and taking responsibility. Uh, To me, the solution is pretty clear. Take responsibility. Today's a fresh day. If this is kind of slapping you in the face, I hope you're hearing from the Lord and what the Word says, not so much about what I say. It's about what God says. If, 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 if this is a struggle, I will say two things. Today's a great day to step up and change something. And, and I will guarantee, I will guarantee there's a whole plethora of men in this congregation that will help you. Absolutely guarantee it. Uh, We need to continue to press into this issue in a way that encourages men to be the, the person that God's created them to be. And we know that we're all broken. We know that we all fail many ways, the Bible says. We all sin in many ways. We get it. We understand that. But as a Christ follower, you're recreated to be different. And you don't have to identify with how you used to be Maybe today's a brand new day to start fresh in a different direction in Christ. Don't let the enemy hold you down with your old identity. You have a new identity. We need to take responsibility. We need to be the men, the husbands, the fathers that God's created us to do, to be. And the third thing is, is that <clears throat> we need to stand in the gap for the fatherless kids. What does that look like? That looks like that you sacrifice your time, your talents, and your treasure to invest in the kids that you can reach. Whatever that takes. It takes on a million different avenues of direction. It takes on a lot of different ways of impact. It might be through ministry here. It might be ministry or, or other clubs and, and whatnot in the community. Whatever that takes on, that's what that takes on. One of the things that that inspires me the most about the Christians in the first century is they were the ones, while being persecuted, were going to the garbage dumps of each of their towns and digging the babies out that were abandoned. Because in that day, that was normal. 
That was first century abortion. If you didn't like it, there was something wrong, you wanted a boy, it was a girl, you wanted a girl, it was a boy, whatever, in the first century, in that culture, in that Greco-Roman culture, if you didn't want what you had, you just threw it away. And it was the Christians that as they come underneath the, the authority of God's word, as they come underneath the teaching of the apostles and the inspiration of the Spirit, they were the ones that were out there rescuing the babies. Wasn't anybody else in the in the culture? It was the Christians. They were the ones going after the fatherless and the motherless. We need to stand in the gap for these kids. I'm encouraging, I'm challenging, I'm cheering you on to embrace this mentality however you can and wherever you can. And I've seen us in action. It's a beautiful thing. I've seen you in action. (laughs) Let's keep going. Christians are told to be strong. I'm getting emotional, and now we're going to talk about strength. It's all right. Showing emotion is a strength. I'm passionate about this. Um, I really am passionate in this sense. And and one of the areas that I uh, have been blessed to be a part of is to be a coach in Chewila. So out of 40-some, 50-some athletes that I deal with every fall, there's a pretty good swath of those kids. <laughs> and some of you teach some of them. Some of you know some of them just by virtue of being in the community. And uh, <clears throat> so there's a swath of those kids. And within probably two or three practices, I know exactly who has both parents in the home. Not because they tell me, but because after doing this for so many years, it's pretty easy to spot. And so those kids... In my mind, it's not that I don't pray for all of them, I do, but I, 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 I generally know kind of who's in what camp. And those kids somehow, they get a lot of my attention driving to and from practice. Because I know those kids, those kids don't have what they really need. They don't have a dad. And so for two hours a day every afternoon, as I'm kind of barking at them through their football helmets, I'm being the dad that they don't have. So I know we're doing stuff. It's not about me. I know that you guys are doing stuff. And I've watched and I've observed, I've cheered. We've worked together on a lot of different things in this regard, whether it's WANA ministry or other ministries in the community. We've had conversations. I've seen you guys in action. It's a remarkable thing. Let's move on before I get emotional again and Jason has to prop me back up. (laughs) Christians are told to be strong. Christians are told to be strong. There's a, there's a, uh, a, a false belief, I think, uh, out there that uh, Christianity is a weak religion. Uh, weak, and, weak is a sense of uh, perception a lot of times. And uh, people get that perception you know, for this reason, probably uh, stands the most for, foremost in my mind, is that we talk about our, we talk about our failures. Like when we share Christ with somebody and they want to know like, all right, so what's your story? Well, here's my story. I was being a complete idiot when I was a teenager. 
I was going down the wrong road. We tell them everything that we did wrong just to set them up and tell them everything that Jesus does right. It's the only, it's the only form of belief where we kind of take that approach. Every other form of belief starts with, with everything that you can get if you work this hard. Everything that you can obtain and every level that you can climb the ladder and, and every bell that you can ring in this form of belief so that you can, you can find favor with God. But Christianity is the only one where we start with all of our issues and say, look at this present that I was dropped in my lap. Jesus died for me. I didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve forgiveness. I didn't deserve to be, to be forgiven for my sins. How in the world would I ever repay them? I don't have to repay them. And they're sitting there talking, what are you talking about? Right? So there's a perception because we started a point of weakness in our testimony that Christianity is a weak religion. And I think of the martyrs through the years that have stood strong for Christ. And I can't think of a better display of strength. They would stand against whatever was pressing against them, whatever tyranny, whatever trial, whatever tribulation, whatever world leader was trying to exterminate them. Not a better show of strength. In Ephesians 6.10, Paul says this to the church in Ephesus. It's kind of a closing thought. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Be strong in the Lord in the power of His might. He's not saying be strong in your own power and in your own might. He's saying be strong in the Lord in the power of His might. That strength comes in your relationship with God. Strength comes really in your surrender to God. It seems completely bizarre to the world. Completely bizarre that, that we would draw strength by surrendering ourselves for what God has for us to do. Seems bizarre, but it's true. So be strong in the Lord, all the things that God's want to do, all the issues that God has in front of you. We're called to be strong in the Lord, not about our own pet things, not about our own opinions. We're to be strong in the Lord, all those things that God has up on the board, in the power of His might. In the power of His might. That we can draw that uh, dynamic, that dynamite power from God can be present and real and have an effect in your daily walk is an absolute miracle. It's an absolute uh, wonderment to, to, to even fathom that the God that created everything and the God as we learned last Sunday night, the God that holds every aspect of your body together can also work powerfully to fulfill His purposes in you and through you and around you in your community. Be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Second Timothy 2, first couple of verses says this, you there Therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus. Interesting phrase of words. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We need to be strong in God's grace. 
Uh, what does that look like? First of all, we need to be strong in the sense that, that we are receiving God's grace. So we can't unattach ourselves in the midst of a, a, of a battle. We can't unattach ourselves from God's grace to us and get puffed up with our own righteousness and then go out and hammer somebody. So we need to be strong in God's grace in that sense that we never are forgetting what God has done for us. And then we need to be strong as we go, as we deal with issues, those times that we need to be flex a little bit, we need to make sure that we're not flexing to tear somebody down. We need to be gracious with them, even in confrontation. We need to be gracious with them, even in confrontation. Because if you're gracious with somebody in confrontation, even though they may disagree with you on the merits, they can't then later say that you are all about just tearing them down personally. That you are making a greater point beyond them as a person. And it's a tactic that too few people today, when they're in the midst of these heated struggles, <laughs> when they're in the midst of these social movements that become very passionate, we lose sight of those two things of graciousness. So we need to be gracious. And you can be gracious by remembering that God was gracious for you. Then Paul says, then Paul says to, the, to Timothy, he says, hey, these things... These things that you've received from me, so you got Paul, then Timothy. He says, commit them to faithful men, third generation, who will be able to teach others also. If you've got four generations, starting with Paul, actually if you want to go back, let's technically say Christ taught Paul personally, so that'd almost be five generations that Paul's really talking to and talking about, saying this is how things grow. The things that I got from Christ, I'm teaching you, Timothy. You teach other people that they can teach other people. So there's a progression to it. There's a spiritual lineage, if you will, that Paul's talking about here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Back to 1 Corinthians 16. I'm sure you're all thinking, if you have glasses on, why are you squinting at the clock? It's a really good question. Paul ends that admonition to the Corinthians. Not the end of the chapter. There's plenty more to say at the end of the chapter, and there's there's some uh, <coughs> there's some awesome connections really uh, between this chapter and the book of Acts uh, in in the movement of what God was doing in his various missionary journeys. Uh, but that being said, let's zoom back in to one last admonition, one last encouragement that he has that really is the overarching theme of all that he says. It's the overarching theme that covers the really the whole of the book. It's woven into their lack of unity. It's woven into uh, their suing one another, the legal issues. It's woven into marriage issues, it's woven into idolatry issues, it's woven into spiritual gift issues. All the things that we had on the list on the first slide is this sentence, let all that you do be done with love. Paul has masterfully wrote this book in such a way that not a part of it is 
is coming from a different motivation than godly love. Even in the correction. Even in the confrontation of, in the, or in the early chapters, hey, there's a guy, he's out of line, there's a bad relationship, it's, it's ungodly, it's not good for the church, get him out of here. Even that action was done in love. He says, let all that you do, let all that you do be done in love. The greatest treatise, of course, in all of the Bible on love is penned in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The centerpiece of the whole book. And Paul says here that love is our greatest motivator. Love is our greatest motivator. Let all that you do be done in love. If the worship team would like to come on up, I'll just share a last few thoughts and we'll go back to worshiping the Lord. Let all that you be do be done in love. Love's motivated the early church to take on the outcast and the unwanted. I mentioned that a bit ago. Love motivated Christians throughout the ages to press the gospel forward all through the earth. Love motivated the reformers to embrace the truth, though it cost them their lives. Love motivated men. Love motiva motivated men like Jim Elliott, Peter Fleming, Ed McCauley, Roger Yordelin and Nate Saint to press into the Ecuadorian jungle and eventually give their lives for Christ. And it was that same love from God that motivated Elizabeth Elliot to forgive the man that killed her husband. I could go on and on and on with examples. I want to leave us with uh, three questions. I want to leave us with these three things to consider this week. What is love motivating you to do? How is God's love that He's pouring into your life, how is it motivating you to do what God has called you to do? How, how, how is it happening? Consider it. Write it down. Have conversations with your spouse. Have conversations with people around you. Don't let it just be a lingering question and one of the last things you heard in the sermon. Take it to heart. Incorporate it into your conversations this week. How is what is love motivating you to do? Second question, where do you need to plant your flag for the sake of love? What area is out there that seems just out of reach, just over the horizon, uh, just scary enough that somehow you're, you've stopped here when God's saying, no, go over there. Get involved in that area of the community. Get in involved in this issue and, and demonstrate God's love to people. You guys are doing a great job with this, by the way. I just want to cheer you on to keep doing more of it. Do more of it. But what area is just out there? Because here's the thing. If it's not, whatever it is, if it's not done of faith, it's done of sight. And we don't walk by sight. We don't walk by just what we can see and what we can experience and what we can feel. As Christ followers, we're called to walk by faith. That means we step over the horizon knowing that God has our footsteps under control. And he leads us in that way. So what area is it that you need to plant your flag for the sake of love? What's out there just out of reach? Go get it. Let God move you in that direction. The third one is, is what situation do you need to address by standing firm in the faith while you're motivated by love? What situation in your life, what area of your marriage, what area of your relationships with the people around you, what area of, of situations at work, what area 
in, in your life? What areas are in my life? These are real questions and they need to have real conversation to be fleshed out. But what areas are there for us where we need to stop waffling like a canoe that's just left afloat in Waits Lake all by itself. What areas do we need to stop and be moored down, be anchored down? What areas do we need to stand firm in the faith and say, no, no, I'm making a stand here because this is right and this is loving. Because if I keep waffling, I'm just giving in to the cultural norms. What areas do we need to stand firm and say, no, this is right. And I'm going to stand here no matter what it takes. And here's the reason why. Because even that, even though it's not a step over the horizon to do something that seems scary, it's a standing firm and it seems scary. Because our, our culture will push back against that. They'll try to cancel us out in the sense. Well, guess what? Christians have been at the epicenter of cancel culture from day one. So what does it matter now, 2,020 years later, 22 years later? What does it matter? Like, haven't we gotten used to this in two centuries? We haven't gotten used to this in two centuries. We have to learn this lesson all over again. Stand firm in the faith. Let everything that you do, men, act like men. I want to insert that real quick. A little pressure on the dudes. Act like men. Let everything you do be motivated by God's love that's in you. Let's worship together.